right. Uh, good morning. How are we? Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Brian Barley. I am one of the pastors of a church called The Summit in uh, downtown Denver, Colorado. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background here in a bit, but I just want to show you what part of the, uh, God's Word we're going to be studying. I'm going to be walking through Acts chapter 1 with you. Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I would love to have you turn there. If you don't have a Bible, I notice you guys have Bibles in the backs of your pews, and it's on page 778 there. So uh, page 778. I'm going to read it. In my church, what we do is we read uh, the scripture, and then whoever's reading the scripture closes off by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and then our people say, thanks be to God. So that's what I'm going to say, and if you feel so led to respond, we'd love to have you participate in what our people are going to do in a couple of hours uh, once our church gathers. So Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, it's good to be with you guys. Um, a little bit of background about me. I know I'm just kind of hopping in for a Sunday and then, and then hopping back out. So um, a little bit uh, about me, just so that you kind of have some idea who you're talking about. I am a, uh, a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'll show you a picture of my family here. Um, they couldn't travel with me, but here they are. And I feel like it always just makes people like you more when they see your entire family and not just you. So I'm trying to kind of pander to you a little bit to be like, oh, I want to hear what this guy has to say. So this is my beautiful family. That's my wife, Megan. She's holding our oldest daughter, Hannah. And then I'm holding our youngest daughter, Gracie. Um, and if you don't know this, and you might know this or not, you and I are extended family. Our mutual connection is through one of your former pastors, Derek Sherfy. Here he is right here. Um, and this is from a gathering we had in the middle of our city uh, called the Mile High Family of Churches Gathering. We do it annually on Super Bowl Sunday. And we, we planted our church eight years ago. I had a vision to help start other churches. And so three years ago, the guy on the left, his name is Corbin, uh, we planted, helped plant him, a church called the Heights Church that's about a mile and a half south of us. And then Derek, who you know, uh, spent his uh, residency in Denver for us, with us for the past year. And we had the privilege of helping uh, you guys plant the Oaks Church about a mile and a half south of Corbin. So our joke is we're just going to keep going like a mile and a half south until we hit New Mexico uh, for the glory of God. And I don't know what happens, happens, <laughs> happens at that point, but it was really, really exciting and sent some of our uh, best people with him and privileged to give him money. You guys gave us money when we started as a church. And so it's fun now um, to be able to like, give him money uh, as they get started. It's really fun for Derek, right? It's really fun to be the one receiving the money. Um, that's more fun than giving the money. But... Um, just real privilege, and, and like I really do love your church. Um, I really do. Your church has been a huge blessing to us. You helped support us when we got started. Um, every single year, you send out a group of students that helps us pull off something called Summit Kids Fest, where we help get together the kids in our community, and we cannot do it without you guys. That's not pastoral overspeak. We literally cannot do it uh, without you guys, and so we love you, and we're thankful for you, and it's a real privilege to be here uh, with you and to open up God's word uh, with you. Um, so here's what happens. 
I was originally asked by Paul to preach a passage from 1 Peter, and um, I took his request seriously. I wrote the entire sermon. Um, the important thing you need to know about that sermon is it's probably one of the best sermons that's ever been created in the history of the world, but you won't hear it, okay? Just know that. Just fact, it was like way better than what I'm about to say. Uh, just follow that in the back of your mind, okay? Um, and last, not last Thursday, but the Thursday before, I uh, was driving to pick up my oldest daughter from preschool, and I found myself, um, I don't know if this weirds you out or not, I cry a lot. I cry a lot when I preach. I just cry a lot. I feel like it's just emotionally healthy. Um, I cry a lot, and I found myself crying in the car, um, thinking about this passage of Acts 1 as I'm going to pick up my daughter. It hit me a few days later that not last Thursday, but the Thursday before was Valentine's Day. So I was trying to think about like what it was like for the people driving by my car, seeing this dude alone in a minivan, just like weeping over himself, like... I wonder who broke his heart. I wonder what happened. It's like, nope, just meditating on the beauty of Acts 1. Carry on. That's, you know, I'm sure nobody guessed that, right? But just, it was just thinking about this. And it, it's, this, this has been a passage that's intersected with um, a lot of what I'm feeling and wrestling with. And um, I hope in the kindness of the Lord, um, a prompting from the Spirit that might uh, be for some of you guys uniquely. You might feel sort of uniquely loved by the Lord in some place that you're at right now and you feel like Acts chapter 1 is a great comfort uh, to you. The reason I wanted to bring Acts chapter 1 to you is because there's this tension that I feel on a Sunday like this, that on one hand, um, I am a church planter, I'm here for an impact weekend, and this is sort of like an outward-focused Sunday. I'm sure every Sunday for you guys is outward-focused. It's been amazing to see just the transformation of your church in that respect. But there's a sort of this unique um, tension that's going on that I'm supposed to kind of come in and like rally you guys to some degree to give your life away for the glory of God and, and do whatever it is that he calls you to do. And yet here's the tension is that I know that a number of you are coming in here this morning and you are just like trying to survive right now. Right, like what's, what's not necessarily on your mind is how do I radically give my life away for the glory of God? It's like, how do I just survive and keep believing that God is actually there? And, um, you know, you're tired, you have bosses that are merciless to you and are trying to squeeze every ounce of productivity out of you while giving you as little money as possible. You're parenting your kids, and your kids are crazy. They're all crazy, like they're crazy. And the big thing on your mind, like beyond just like raising disciples, is just like, you know what I'm thinking about is like, I'm just trying to parent in a way that like my kid is not in counseling for the rest of their life because of the outbursts I have like towards them. Like that's, that's the big win for this week. Um, you know, a lot of you are students, and you're just like, I'm just trying to like make it through the week without being like mercilessly bullied. I'm just trying to graduate. Um, maybe what's not on my mind right now is giving my, my life away for the glory of God. And you just feel tired and you feel weak. And um, I thought about this uh, recently. I don't know if any of you ever listened to Jim Gaffigan, the, the comedian, but he um, has this line that people ask him, what's it like to have four kids? And he says, well, imagine you're drowning and somebody hands you a baby. Um, that's what it's like to have four kids. And I feel, like, I feel like the book of Acts is like that sometimes, right? Where it's like a lot of you are coming in here and you're feeling like you're drowning and trying to survive. And, um, and then the church planner comes in and I'm like, give your life away for the glory of God. And you're just like, I am just trying to survive right now. And so here's what I would just say is if you come in this morning and you feel weak and you feel tired, one, I've been uniquely there with you for the last couple of weeks, and I think this is why this passage has been so meaningful to me. I would also say the opening of Acts um, 
uh, and what you see in chapter one, I, I really hope in God's grace intersects with what it is that you're going through and makes you find a safe place in the midst of your weakness, as well as increases your vision to believe that God in you and through you, through a power that is above you and beyond you, that he might indwell you and compel you to do abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine for his glory and for your joy as well. All right, so we're going to walk through Acts chapter 1 in the first eight verses. Um, Let me give some context of what's going on. I know you guys are in Romans. Actually, we as a church preached through Romans last year, and so um, I pray it's as much a blessing to you guys as it was to us. But since we're jumping into kind of the middle of the Bible, let me give you some context of what's been going on. Let's start at the beginning. God made everything. How's that for some context? God made everything and he spoke everything into existence through the power of his word. And he, by his grace, gave us his crown jewel of creation. If you are a person in this room, which I don't see any robots, so consequently, if you are a person in this room, you are the most precious thing made by the God who made everything, and he gives us the very gift of the breath that fills up our lungs and created the totality of the cosmos to exist in perfect relationship and harmony with himself. It is the world that we, regardless of our worldview or belief system, long to experience and obtain. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to play God rather than allow God to be God over our lives. And sin entered into the world. That is a separation from a holy God. God is infinite kindness and mercy rather than abandoning us is immediately in the garden as the first missionary in response to the first sin doing three things. He is pursuing, he is promising, he is providing. He is pursuing, he is promising, he is providing. That is the storyline of the scriptures. God pursues us in the midst of our sin. God promises to make things right and he is going to make provision to put the world back together in the way that it's meant to be. This storyline cycles over and over and over again through the totality of the Old Testament until it reaches its climax and its clarity and its culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God pursues in the ultimate way of stepping out of heaven into history, taking on human flesh. He makes good on a promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that in response to the brokenness and the chaos that's entered into the world, there will be a seed from the woman. There will be a man who is born who will fulfill the deepest longings of the human heart and he will do the work to put the world back together in the way that we long for it to be and he provides by laying down his own son in our place for our sins so that Jesus, having lived a perfect life, might give us the gift of righteousness so that we might be reconciled back to a righteous and holy God. At the cross, when he dies, he might secure and gift us our forgiveness so that we might be forgiven of our sin and be able to reconcile back to God. And he resurrects three days later victorious, giving us, by grace through faith, the victory over the greatest enemies of humanity that you and I still have no answer for, regardless of all our technological advancements, that is enemies such as Satan, sin, death, and hell. Now, following the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus gives something called the Great Commission. We'll look at here in a bit. But Acts is written in the context of basically how did this Great Commission work. And even just like this morning, I would love for you to um, connect the dots 
that we in this room are the fruit of the legacy of what is being introduced to us in Acts. Like the reason that you're sitting in this room right now, the reason you sing in this room right now, is not because it's like empty cultural tradition. It's not dutiful obligation. If that's what it was, empty cultural tradition, dutiful obligation, guilt only motivates for like a very short period of time. You wouldn't be here. You'd be like sleeping in or brunching right now. That's what you would be doing, especially like you have some fantastic brunch spots in the Tri-Cities. I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. Um, Maple Street, is that like a biscuit place? Is that, did I call it the right thing? Is that right? We went there yesterday and it was just like, I had resolved to eat healthy on this trip and then I was like, no, it's not worth it. I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat fried chicken and a biscuit and syrup and butter all in the same, it was just amazing. So anyways, you would be there instead, right? You would be there, I don't know if it's open right now, but if it was, you'd be there instead. The reason that we are here is the fruit of the legacy of Jesus resurrecting from the grave, gathering together some unlikely people and saying to them, you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth and they planted churches and planted churches and planted churches full of disciples who were made, disciples that were made, disciples that were made, and that spanned multiple generations, it spanned oceans, until we in Tennessee, 2,000 years later, are gathering together, you're listening to this weird bearded guy, as the fruit of the legacy of what we see happen in Acts chapter 1. Thanks be to God. And so the first three verses of Acts really are studying the context, Luke, the author, saying, hey, I told you in my first book, Luke, about all Jesus did and taught. Now I'm going to tell you about what Jesus continued to do and teach through the power of his Holy Spirit and the desire to answer a singular question that everybody in the first century and even people today are trying to wrap their minds around, how does a fringe group of a few dozen people after their movement's founder has been murdered be the kind of people who are introduced as the ones who have turned the world upside down as they're introduced in Acts chapter 17, all while being ruthlessly persecuted by their enemies and then retaliating not with violence, but love and prayer. Now, this introduces the odd theme of weakness. So what I'm going to do um, in this text is I'm going to look at verse 8. We're going to rewind back to verse 4, and then we'll work our way back to 8. But the reason I want to start in 8 is because it's a reiteration of the Great Commission, which we referenced a few minutes ago. Verse 8 says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, there's a threefold aspect of this calling that you're seeing here. Uh, The first is that it's an evangelistic call. It is a call from Jesus to share our faith with other people. I think this is particularly necessary in the modern age. Culture is growing increasingly hostile to evangelism. Even self-identifying Christians and even self-identifying evangelicals are growing increasingly hostile to uh, evangelism. Even saw a study, I think it was like came out two weeks ago, and it was saying millennial, that's the age group basically around my age, a little bit older and a little bit younger. Millennial self-identified evangel- evangelical Christians at a kind of unprecedented rate in American history are saying that it is wrong to share your faith with somebody else. That is an imposition of beliefs, and they say you should sort of be more like Jesus and not share your faith. And my response to all that is the only problem with that is the words of Jesus himself from this text where he's like, hey, you need to go like tell everyone everywhere about this. And so following the way of Jesus is the sharing of our faith. Our faith is not meant to be hoarded. It's not not meant to be privatized. It's not meant to be uh, reduced to sort of one equally legitimate path of reconciliation back to God alongside Islam and Buddhism and Taoism. It's like, no, like Jesus himself in John 14, 6 declares, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And consequently, Jesus is saying over and over and over again, this truth, this grace, this love that you've experienced by walking with me, take this and spread this outside of yourselves. 
So first, there's an evangelistic call. Second, there's a multi-ethnic call to this as well. It's interesting that Jesus, in verse 8, will give this little detail of describing these geographic locations of Jerusalem and Judea, and all of a sudden he throws in that little detail of Samaria. Now, when you read forward in Acts, as well as in the New Testament epistles as well, most explicitly in the book of Galatians, what you find is the men that he's talking to in this moment, they are uh, ethnically Jewish, and they wrestle with this uh, misbelief that there's some sort of ethnic superiority they possess because of their Jewishness. And the reason that Jesus throws in this little detail is to help them understand that what they're after is the making of disciples of Jesus of not just people that look like them or they've deemed as being worthy of being ethnically clean. But instead to say there is no ethnic hierarchy in the kingdom of God. He basically names the one place that an ethnic Jewish man would have deemed as unworthy and unlovable. And it would have been easy for them to misinterpret, hey, what you're talking about, Jesus, is the Jewish diaspora. That is Jewish men and women who have spread to the multiple nations. No, I want you to reach people of all nations, of all ethnicities. So there's this call to share your faith with people of all ethnicities to the very ends of the earth. That is, there a global call to this as well. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And do you know what ends of the earth means? It means ends of the earth. There you go. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, to the ends of the earth. So what he's saying is, I want you to tell everyone everywhere, of all ethnicities, of all nations, about my grace and truth, and that I am the only way to be reconciled back to God. Now, big ask, right? Can you imagine being there and hearing him be like, here's your job description. Go tell everyone everywhere about this. Now, here's what's interesting. You know what the first command that Jesus gives his disciples in the book of Acts is? Look at verse 4. This should be fascinating. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Somebody say, wait with me. Wait. Wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Isn't that weird that the first command given in the accomplishment of the Great Commission in the book of Acts is to wait? What does waiting communicate? It communicates weakness, doesn't it? Waiting communicates weakness, a lack of preparation, an inability, a powerlessness, a finiteness, a limited, you can describe it in any particular way, but a limited um, inability to accomplish the very thing that Jesus is calling them to do. What a huge boost of confidence, anticipation of kicking off the mission and movement of God, isn't it? Lest you think this is some sort of biblical outlier, consider how the Gospel of Luke ends. Jesus says this in Luke 24. So again, Luke's the author of Acts. He wrote Luke and Acts, the end of Luke. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Does that sound familiar? The Great Commission again, right? Like go tell everyone, everywhere, of all nations, of all ethnicities about this. Now pause again for a second and put yourself in that place. Now, um, anybody here lead people in any way? Maybe you're a boss, maybe you're a small group leader, whatever it is. Anybody here a type A type leader? Um, I am a type A type leader. And so what that means is I sort of expect when I say something for people to like be on, working on it immediately and have it fixed as quickly as possible. So if I'm giving this command, I'm like, go tell everyone, everywhere, of all nations, of all ethnicities, about this, go! Like, why are you still sitting here? Go, go, go. Like, what are you looking at me for? Go. That's a lot of people. Go. 
Anybody here the type of person who thrives on getting things done? Anybody like that? Like my wife, for example, has a list of things to do. Every single day she has her list, and she so loves getting the things on her list done, she not only writes things down and scratches them off, but if she gets something done that wasn't originally on the list, she will go back to the list, write the thing that she got done down on the list, and scratch it off for the sense of accomplishment of getting things done. Anybody else do that here? Yeah, okay, good. It's like, yeah, she, I'll tell her she has some kindred spirits here. Right, so if like you're that type of person, and somebody's like, here's what I need you to do. Here's, you know, if you're like that, she's like, okay, go tell everyone everywhere, and he's not even finishing the sentence, and you're like running out of the room. You're like, okay, I'm on it, I'm going to work on it, I'll be back. I'll be back after I've got it done. Go tell everyone everywhere, of all nations, of all ethnicities, about this. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay, somebody say stay with me, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So wait, stay in the city. You do not have a power in yourself to accomplish the very thing that I am calling you to do. Again, the reiteration of the theme that we, in our own strength, are unable to accomplish the very thing that we are being called by Jesus to do. So wait, lest you think that's a weird thing. Jesus, throughout his entire life, I mean, I could just do a whole biblical theology of, like, finiteness and limit, and the way that God is helping people understand that they're weak without him. But, I mean, most explicitly, Jesus says, for example, in John 15, 5, he was saying, like, all these weird things that are totally countercultural. He would say these things like, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And what a bizarre message, right? I think particularly for our own culture, where we exist in a culture of sort of, um, you know, motivational talks and just watch this TED talk, just read this book, all your problems can go away, self-actualize your potential. You have a strength and power in yourself that if you could just tap into it, you can change the world. And Jesus is like giving the worst TED talk in the history of the world, being like, yeah, you can do absolutely nothing of significance apart from me. Like, that's not helpful. You know, that's not motivating. That doesn't make me feel very good about myself, Jesus. But Jesus is projecting to us reality. And we would do well to listen. The question that I think we should ask ourselves is like, okay, why is this, if it's such a different message than what we experience from the broader culture, why is this such good news for us? We typically don't think of weakness as something good, right? Like, have you ever described somebody as weak in a complimentary way? Have you ever, like, been on a date with somebody and your friends are like, hey, how did it go? And you're like, he is so weak. And your friends are like, oh, girl, you better marry him. You better lock that down. You'd be like, like, as soon as somebody's described as weak, it's like, you got to get out of that. you got to get out of that, right? So, like, why is, why is weakness something to admire? Two reasons. One, what's happening here in Acts chapter 1 is an affirmation of our experience an affirmation of our experience. You see, here's the reason I was crying about this passage, is I was thinking about what it must have been like for the disciples who have, like, in this moment, probably more epic failure per square inch than anybody in the history of the world to have Jesus affirm their brokenness and not discard them, not disregard them, not abandon them, but say, hey, I'm still going to use you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. 
I mean, like, here's this group of guys that Jesus has been like, you know what's going to happen? All of you guys are going to abandon me. And they're like, no, we ain't going to abandon you. And then Peter's like the loudest of them all. Like, I swear, like, these jokers, they're going to abandon you, but I'm not going to abandon you. Like, they're all going to abandon you, but I'm going to be with you to the very end. And like 17 minutes after making this, like, pledge of undying loyalty, you know what happens? Is Peter is running as quickly as possible away from the crucified Christ, all while being interrogated by a little girl. Hey, do you know him? Do you know him? You know him? I've never met him in my entire life. I have nothing to do with him whatsoever. And you see, what happens for most of us, I don't know if your experience is like this, but typically in a culture where strength is the ethos, when people are exposed to our brokenness and our limitations and our finiteness, you know what we're used to? We're used to people abandoning us when they see the worst in us, aren't we? And a number of you in this room, you've been hurt, your weakness has been taken advantage of, you've been abandoned, your weakness has been taken advantage of. But here's the thing, is Jesus loves us and he treats us in a way that nobody else loves us and treats us. Because while everybody else, when they see the worst in us, they tend to abandon us and tend to crush us. You know what happens when Jesus sees the worst in us? He doesn't abandon us, but he goes to the cross to die for us and to redeem us, and to restore us back to ourselves. And can you imagine the good news of what it must have been like for the disciples to have been like, man, we messed this up way too bad. He's definitely going to create, like, disciples 2.0 that are, like, way better than us. And to be like, I've seen the worst in you, and I love you, and I'm committed to you, and I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to turn the world upside down for my glory. I'm not abandoning you. The plan is still on. Secondly, and only affirm, weakness not only affirms our experience, but it cultivates in us our deepest joy. Here's sort of the secret of weakness. It's the front door into experiencing the strength of the Spirit of God in our lives is the recognition and confession of our weakness. Or, to put it another way, if dependency on Jesus and his Spirit and intimacy with our Father are the goal, then weakness is actually to our advantage. And this is where we have to do the hard work of self-reflecting on, like, what is it that I want to make my life about, right? Like, if the end goal of my life is the American dream, which typically centers around autonomy, self-sufficiency, independence, I'm okay giving to people, I don't want to be in need, I'm okay helping people, I don't want to be the one who has to be helped because I don't have enough stuff, I want control, I want power over my own life. That is the narrative that we are fed over and over and over again, from the movies we're raised on to the commercials that we experience to the technological advancements that we enjoy. We are strong. You can do anything. Put your mind to it and you can be anything. Have you thought about the degree to which all of American culture is oriented to a place of feeding this lie that was whispered to us all the way back to our first parents in the garden? You don't need God. You can be God. I was thinking about this even a couple of weeks ago. My five-year-old is very is, uh, inquisitive about, like, the way the world is, the way the world works. And she's very inquisitive also about the way the world was when I was five years old and when I was six years old. I don't know if you have kids who are the same way. Hey, like, what was the world like when you were five? As if it was, like, a different eon or something like that. But that's the way she asked the question. And um, one of the things that I told her, this was, like, a few weeks ago, I told her that a ritual in my family growing up was every Saturday morning, we would wake up and we would watch professional wrestling on the USA Network. I don't know if anybody else did this. I don't know if you're judging me hard right now. But I grew up in an unchurched family. It's just what we did. Okay, that was our Saturday, that was our Saturday morning ritual. And she's like, what's wrestling? You know, it's just like, I have to know. I have to know what it is. I was like, well, there was this guy like named Hulk Hogan. He would fight Andre the Giant. And she's just like, you know, question after question after question. And I'm trying to explain it to her. And 
She's like, what's it like? And I'm like, fine, fine, I'll show you what it's like. So we have Apple TV. I pull up my phone. I pull up the app on my phone for Apple TV. I pull up the YouTube app. I type in Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania. And I cast it to the TV. And within about 45 seconds of her asking, what is wrestling like? I have projected onto the TV the WrestleMania fight of Hulk Hogan fighting against Andre the Giant. And she just watched it in awe. Now that is like Genesis 1-esque power, isn't it? Like if I, use, if, I, if I just said what I said to you 10 years ago, you would have been like, are you a god? Like are you from the future? Are you, are you just, you know, like are we traveling around on our hovercrafts? You have self-lacing t- uh, shoes as well. But there's all these innovations, and there's all these experiences, and there's all these narratives that are feeding in. We are strong, we're in control, we are powerful, and it cultivates within us an idea that weakness and intimacy and dependency and leaning on the strength of our God is not good news for our souls, but a burden, an intrusion on us. But if you've lived for any period of time, you've seen that like while you might be able to control the temperature in your car down to the specific degree Fahrenheit, it doesn't mean we have control or strength over the things of life that actually matter the most. And so if the vision for your life is something beyond just like strength, power, control, willing my future into existence, but actually you've had enough life experience to be like, I'm finite and I'm limited and I'm weak. Well, that's actually not very bad news because if dependency on Jesus and his spirit and intimacy with the Father are the goal, then weakness is actually to our advantage. And what's such good news about this passage is where our weakness is exposed in verse 4, immediately strength enters in. There's a promise of strength that begins in verse 6. It says, when they, that's the disciples that come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they're still not getting it. Jesus is so long-suffering, so patient. They're still not getting it. They're still viewing the mission and movement of God through this primarily ethnic geopolitical lens. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons of the Father as fixed by his own authority, but you will receive Power. Somebody say power with me. You'll receive power. And the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, if you're under the delusion that you're strong, the promise of power is not good news to you at all. It's an intrusion. It's a burden. It's an interruption. It's an insult even. Like, what do you mean I need power? Like, I'm plenty strong. You see my house? See what car I drive? I'm powerful. Man, you feel weak, you feel finite, you feel limited, you feel tired. The promise of power is such good news for your soul, isn't it? You know, it's like I live in a, it's interesting, in in my neighborhood there's a lot of um, income disparity. So you have really wealthy people and you have really poor people. And one of the things I love living amongst my poor neighbors is seeing the way they just love things that most of us take for granted. So I don't know if you've ever like had a relationship with somebody who's homeless. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's homeless receive a home. You know who loves a home unlike anybody else is somebody who was homeless for a season of their life. 
You know, somebody who like loves and appreciates the gift of a meal and food and like praying before a meal is not just sort of like an empty cultural tradition. It's like, oh Lord, you've provided this for me. Is somebody who like has struggled to put food on the table for the extended seasons of their life. You know who should love the promise of power? It's people that are like, I am weak. In the same way that the homeless loves the new home, in the same way that the hungry loves the offer of a meal, we who are weak should come alive in the deepest recesses of our soul at the promise of power and to say like, oh my gosh, I can be used for the glory of God. It's like you were never meant to read Acts as like, here's this group of superheroes, always faithful, always courageous. It's like more epic failure per square inch. And you should read this book to be like, oh my gosh, God can use anybody, even me, for his glory to turn the world upside down. I think this is where this um, intersects with our experience and our feeling of weakness, particularly as it pertains to the mission and movement of God, is I think a lot of times what happens is somebody like me comes in and I'm supposed to be like, go share your faith with your friends and your neighbors and your family members and your coworkers and your schoolmates. Go to the ends of the earth, even if it's dangerous, and lose your life for the gospel. Go to a major U.S. city of great influence and great need, and you're sort of supposed to play the part and be like, yeah, 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 we'll do it, when in reality, you have an internal dialogue of being like, man, I don't want to make it weird with my friend. Like, if I share my faith with my sister... Um, it might not go very well. And then whatever the next holiday is we celebrate, I grew up celebrating St. Patrick's Day because my family's Irish. You know, at St. Patrick's Day lunch, it's going to get real weird real fast. If I share my faith with, like, my classmate, you know, I'm trying to work my way up the school hierarchy to get cooler, not less cool, and me, like, bringing up my faith and not just having this be this empty cultural thing, but being like, hey, I, I have been reconciled back to God. I want you to hear my story. Like, that's not going to move me up the social food chain to where, like, I'm the first person asked to go to homecoming. If I move overseas to somewhere dangerous, I might die, and I don't want to die. I know that's, like, a big thing, but, like, I don't want to die. I I have a different vision of death than, like, dying at this phase of my life. If I move to a U.S. city, you know, I like the idea of it. It seems pretty cool. But then I got on, you know, uh, a website that shows housing costs. And you know what's true about cities is, like, you get like way less house for like way more money. It's like the opposite of what I'm going for. I'm going for a lot of house for a little bit of money. And you people in the city are stupid because you get little house, lots of costs. That's dumb, and um, my bank account is not really set up for that particular, particular thing. You're like, you're being honest about that, and I think it's okay for you to be honest about that. You know what's the common denominator and all that, those pushbacks and objections? as your finiteness, you're limited, you are unabil- you're unable to protect yourself, you're unable to ensure the way that an evangelistic conversation is going to go exactly in the way that you want it to go, you're unable to provide for yourself and to make sure that you're never going to have any financial needs ever. And you know what? All of the theme of that is one of weakness. And in the broader culture outside of the kingdom of God, weakness means abandonment, it means punishment, it means, be, it means being dismissed, it means not being used. But you know what the upside-down nature of the kingdom is? And the upside-down nature of the kingdom is when you understand your finiteness and your limitations and your weakness, you are actually walking into the front door of experiencing and enjoying and tasting and seeing the strength of God going through you. And what happens then is this posture of dependency as you, you know, like I'm sure all of you in this room 
if you're a follower of Jesus, have people in your family that like you would love to see come to faith. And I'm the exact same place as well. And instead of going into that relationship with a posture of like, I better be strong in this conversation. I better be able to like deliver the gospel in this like funny but heartfelt perfect moment sort of way. I better be ready for any objections that are brought up. Like, what do they bring up evolution? What do they bring up this particular question? I better read every science textbook that's ever been read in the history of the world so that I can give the perfect answer, right? Like, that's an expectation of, like, I have to be strong enough to see this person saved and reconciled back to God. But if you come in from a place of vulnerability of being like, all I've got is the word of God and what he's done in my life, and I'm trying to learn some things, I don't have all the questions, and I don't even have all the answers, but, like, look, I love you, and the reason I'm risking our relationship is because I love you to such a degree that I don't want to just hang out with you. I want to spend, like, eternity with you. Like, I want to hang out with you for the totality of eternity, and I know this might be weird, and I'm just asking that, like, maybe God's been doing something in your heart that would lead to this particular moment, I'm just going to put this out there. That sort of vulnerability, that sort of dependency, that's the environment in which men and women are reconciled back to God for his glory. That when you think about going overseas to places that aren't safe, Instead of being like, yeah, I'm not scared. Who's scared? Like, of course we're not scared. Like, we're all a little scared if we're honest. But to say, you know what? Like, actually the parts of Scripture where the authors were crying out and actually declaring that God is my protector, I'm going to actually have a transformation even in my own life where those sort of sentences go from black and white to being in living color. Living in the heart of a city where there's a decent amount of crime, I'll tell you what, you know what, like, you know what's way better than being in an environment where it's safe all the time? It's being in a place where you actually come to believe and need God to be your protector. Oh, it's so better. It's so much better than having never the threat of violence whatsoever. And God in his kindness in the midst of your fears and your dependency and your weakness moves you to a place where the gospel might not only be rejected but persecuted and your intimacy with God will be cultivated to such a degree that he will come alive in ways you've never experienced him being alive as well. And it's there that your deepest joy is found. For those of you that like are thinking about moving to cities and um, you know the space is small and you have young kids and it's not particularly conducive to young kids. Like I only have two kids and I go places in my city and I just have people look at me like, what are you doing with those little people here? Why are they like, well, they're a person, you know, like I love them and I think they matter. That's why they're at the coffee shop. Sorry to bother you. Oh, hipster of great opinion. Um, you know, like, like, like they, they matter, you know, they, they, they matter. And it's like people look at you that way. And yeah, you have to find ways to make things work, like your kids sharing a room. But you know, like what's infinitely better than like every person having their exact same space, you know what's better than like everybody being able to have like a, their own swimming pool in their own backyard is actually cultivating within them, in your children, this posture of need and dependency and sharing with your neighbors and dealing with people that might be uh, easy to avoid in other contexts, but actually they're our neighbors that so we have to relate to them and having homeless who we actually know by names and we have like food packed for them to give to them as we see them throughout the comings and goings of our day. Like a lot of times that presents fear. A lot of times that presents trembling. A lot of times that presents difficulty. But in the midst of all that fear, the common denominator in the midst of it is weakness and limitations and finiteness. And what we see is the spirit of God who is beyond us and above us comes to indwell us, to empower us, do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine as Paul would promise in the book of Ephesians. And it's there that the good life really is found. And so if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling limited, what I pray is that you would feel 
not only comforted, but you would feel empowered. And you would feel even in the coming week, even in the coming month, even in the coming years, ready to press in with dependency on the Lord who loves you. To do a work in your life, to ask him to do something in your life where when people from the outside are seeing what's happening, the only explanation is that something supernatural happened. The only explanation, even to your non-Christian family, would be that God stepped in and moved. Anybody want to risk this week? Anybody want to lean heavily on the grace of the Lord this week? Anybody want to stretch themselves for the great mission and movement of God this week? Let's do that. Let's do that. And let's have sanctified dreams and visions of what could happen through the men and women in in this world as we scatter and engage the spheres of influence that God in his kindness has entrusted us with to engage as missionaries. Let's pray now to that end. Father, we love you and we're thankful for you and um, we're, we're thankful for the way that the scriptures intersect with our needs. And I pray in this room there would be a real posture of dependency and need uh, on you. We need you. We love you. We're thankful for you. And all of our experience points to the reality that um, we are not strong in ourselves. God, we're thankful that the scriptures consequently don't dismiss us or tell us, you know, here's steps to getting stronger, but instead to say that when we are weak, that you are strong. I pray for a particular comfort for people who feel scared about sharing their faith, feel scared about moving to a difficult area, feel scared about moving to a place that's expensive, and they would realize that rather than running away from their fears, they should press in, step out in faith and obedience, and experience a genuine intimacy and dependency with you. What is way better than being comfortable is knowing and experiencing God. That's infinitely better than comfort. So God, let us step out of what is comfortable. Let us step into your strength on display in our lives and let us experience a deeper love and enjoyment of you. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.